You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Welcome tonight. Uh, this is an evening I've looked forward to for some time to uh, spend some time talking with Alan Jacobs. Alan, I'm embarrassed. I just asked Jason what your official title is, and I know something like Distinguished Chair of All Things Great in the Western Intellectual Tradition. What is, what's your title again? I, you know, generally awesome dude. <laughs> I'll I think, like yeah. That. Okay. It's um, actually, it's uh, my my son can never remember this either. So he says, "What are you? What are you, are you like a dignified professor?" And I go, "No, I'm definitely not a dignified professor. It's a it's distinguished professor of humanities." Okay. Yeah. okay. And I'm gonna ask you a second, um, Alan, just for those of uh, us here tonight who don't know your intellectual history all that well or even your background, give us a little bit of context. Sure. We'll sure. In a um, just for some of you who've been at the Advent for a while, you'll remember Frank Limehouse. Frank. Limehouse. Did you ever meet Frank? I never okay. met Frank. Um, Frank. Frank would hand out um, Alan Jacobs' set of essays, original sin, like they were hot off the press. <laughs> I love he, it. He gave one to me. I'm not sure what he was trying to say. But yeah. He, he gave a copy of that to me. I brought a few uh, others of Alan's books tonight, and just to use them as an as a illustration. And I've been reading so much Alan Jacobs over the past two weeks, I feel like we're just friends. Soul brothers. Soul brothers. Yeah. Um, so we have here a book from the early 2000s, The Theology of Reading, uh, The Hermeneutics of Love, which I think is one of your more intellectually kind of rigorous projects. Scholarly books, yeah. Um, the other one I brought tonight, which we will talk a good bit about this book tonight, if that's okay, Alan. Sure. It's the Pleasure of Reading in the Age of Distraction, which I have enjoyed this book thoroughly, and we will engage some of the ideas in that book tonight. Um, How to Think, which is 2000. Last year. No, just last year. Yeah, 17. Publication, which I think I saw on sale yeah. in the lobby, so feel free to do that and to support maybe another evening at Highlands for you. In your that would day. be awesome. <laughs> If my wife gets to eat, it's up to you. So. <laughs> and then uh, Alan's most recent work is uh, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, uh, Christian Humanism in an Age of Crisis. And what Alan, and we'll talk some about this book as well, but what Alan does in this work is to engage five significant thinkers um, in the crisis of World War II. And right. immediately after that, um, uh, thinking through what role the humanities plays in the reconstruction of civilization. And so exactly. The figures are T.S. Eliot and um, T.S. Eliot. Yeah, uh, in in sort of descending order of age, Jacques Maritain, uh, T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, W.H. Uh, Auden, and Simone Weil. So um, a lot uh, has come from uh, Jacobs, <laughs> Professor Jacobs, over the past few years, and um, and I, I think it'd be helpful for us and for me as well. Um, and I'm going to call you Alan. Uh, you should. Yeah. Uh, Alan, is to just tell us a little bit about your own background. Right. Um, kind of help us contextualize you intellectually and spiritually. Um, and this is a question that I have that's kind of a personal question because of my mm -hmm. own location in the academy right now. Mm -hmm. um, in the introduction that Alden does to his collected poems, he talks about his younger self as a poet and yeah. his younger self, the kind of security that he has. Right. Now, as a 60-year-old professor right. versus the 25-year-old, right. 30-year-old. Right. I'd like to hear some of that um, narrative from you about how you've transitioned 
Yeah. Your own intellectual development, how you differ as a scholar and as a right. speaker, as a writer, as a teacher yeah. now compared to what you were when you were 30. So if you right. talk to your 30-year-old self, yeah. what would that conversation look like? Yeah. Um, do you want me to do about my earlier history first and you then go to that? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, um, so uh, yeah, I'll just probably start with that just um, and, and sort of lead on. And by, I would say, by midnight, I'll get up to the present day. So, y'all, you know, I'm telling the folks in the Advent that I want them to hire me as their raconteur in residence, you know, so that I can just be the guy who tells stories. Um, so I'm from here. I'm from Birmingham. Um, and I was born uh, in... Uh, what was then called West End Hospital and is now Baptist uh, Center Monk, what do they call it? Princeton. Princeton, yeah. Um, and grew up in a neighborhood called East Thomas, which is just off Arkadelphia Road. Um, went to Gorgas Elementary School, which doesn't exist anymore. It's been torn down. Uh, after that, I went to, uh, uh, for four years, to Elaton School, which is torn down, doesn't exist anymore. And then we moved to the to uh, East Lake, and I went to Banks High School, which has been torn down, doesn't exist anymore. So, <laughs> also the houses I grew up in have been torn down and don't exist anymore. So, so I'm not sure what the Lord is trying to tell me in all of this, but that's. But um, um, I didn't um, didn't grow up in uh, uh, an observant Christian home. My father was very definitely not a Christian. Um, he had he had been in the Navy for many years and had actually been in Japan um, uh, when Japan was being reconstructed at the end of World War II and then he was in China he was in Shanghai for a while uh, he was actually there when the Maoist revolution took over and and it, it that sort of made a cultural and religious relativist out of him he didn't really see why one religion should be any better than another religion and he's you know he was you know just um you know, never finished high school you know my mother never finished high school she left work at age 13 uh, school at age 13 to work for a living later on took a GED so I come, I, I, I'm the only person in my family who's ever been to college, much less to, I'm, I'm the only one who's ever graduated from high school, <laughs> um, much less anything beyond that. Um, and uh, uh, when I, um, I started, started, I graduated from high school at age 16, they would double promote people in those days, they don't do that anymore, thanks be to God. Um, and... Um, and so my parents didn't really think that college was anything that made any sense, but they let me live in the house while I went to UAB for a couple of years. Now I eventually transferred to the University of Alabama. And I did that because I met a woman at UAB who was actually just there for one semester, um, and she thought I should transfer to uh, Alabama, and I was sufficiently besotted with her that I would do anything she told me to do. Um, and the other thing was become a Christian. Um, that was pretty clear she wasn't going to go out with me unless I became a Christian. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. I've got, <laughs> I've got no problem with that. that. That's a new evangelization strategy we're teaching. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She never told me to, but I was a quick study. And so I, I realized that this was what, this was what needed to happen. Uh, turns out that you, you don't know what's going to happen. If you start reading the Bible in order to have conversation starters with other people, th that God can use that anyway, um, which has uh, proven to me, ever since then, I've never cared much about motives. 
right? Because <laughs> my motives were not very good, and, and God overlooked that, as did Terry. So, uh, and and it, it all worked. We've been married 38 years now, so it all worked out. It all worked out pretty well. Um, but um, I started trying for the first time when I was when I was uh, at Alabama to try to think as a Christian, which I had never really done before. And I didn't make much progress with that, and I kind of gave it up. Um, and then when I went to the University of Virginia for grad school, I, as it got closer to the point at which I was going to have to think about, could, could I get a teaching job at all? And if I did, where would, where would I teach? I, uh, I started thinking about it more and tried to form myself intellectually as a Christian, which was something that I hadn't really done to that point. Um, and I, I was, I was. Uh, um, if, if I'm remembering this right, I may not have this right, but I think I do. Um, Victor, do you remember coming when you were at Gordon College? Did did you ever come back to Briarwood to talk at Briarwood or anything about your experience? I think you did. I think you were a couple of years ahead of us, and Terry thought really seriously about going to Gordon, and finally decided it was too cold. Um, and uh, but but she had that idea in her mind of of Christian higher education, and so she planted that idea in my head. And eventually, I got a one-year appointment at Wheaton College in Illinois. I just wanted to, one year when I was still working on my dissertation to find out what Christian higher education was like, because I had no idea. <laughs> Never set foot on a Christian college campus. Didn't know what that was. And that one year turned into 29 years. Um, and so when I was when I was 30 years old, uh, I was a relatively new faculty member at Wheaton. I would have been, I started teaching there when I was 25. So I was five years in and still uh, by that point time I had no 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 that uh, it was a year and a half later that I yeah but um, but I was working really hard because I knew some people at UVA who were the eternal graduate student types you know. Like one guy that I knew who had been working on his PhD for 17 years. <laughs> and then about five years ago, I ran into somebody and, who said, hey, do you remember Roger? He got his PhD. <laughs> he was like 66 or something, and he finally got his PhD. So there's hope for everybody, right? He's an assistant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but <laughs> just getting started <laughs> on his career. But... Um, but but at that time I was still such a baby in the faith and certainly a baby in 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 trying to think as a Christian um, and I didn't really know what I was uh, I knew I wanted to write but I didn't know what my audience was going to be and when I was 30 years old I think my big question was am I going to just talk to my fellow scholars or am I just going to talk to my fellow Christians you know who's going to be my audience right. And, and it was some time not long after that that I realized that I actually was not able to choose. I, I, was, I was just going to have to have different audiences that I talked to because I was interested in talking to different audiences. And that just was going to make my life more complicated and I was just going to have to deal with it. And so ever since then, I've written for Christian periodicals and I've written for secular periodicals. And I've published books on Christian presses and on secular presses. And I think that's been so helpful to me. And um, I really, I wouldn't never have written How to Think if it hadn't been for that. Because How to Think is a book that grows out of having to live in different communities. You know, in a, in a believing community and then in a non-believing community. And how believers and non-believers can often have hostile and uncomprehending responses to one another. 
And so I thought that was my cross to bear for a long time, but I finally decided that was actually the greatest benefit that I got was was living in these different communities and learning how to talk across boundaries and to try to help teach people to be more charitable and forbearing towards one another. So I think if, if, when I was 30, what I would have would have been great if I could go back to my 30-year-old self and say, don't force a false choice on yourself. Just realize that your life is going to be more complicated than it is for most academics who are only talking to their fellow academics and don't ever think about anything else. And just accept that compli complication and trust that God has a blessing for you in the midst of it. So, um, Alan, I thought we'd let tonight's, the shape of tonight's conversation center on three big themes. I, okay. I, I'm, I'm not confident we're going to get to all three. <laughs> um, but I'd like to think out loud about thinking. So that's our first okay. session. And then we'll, we'll move to thinking about reading. Okay. And then I have some questions to ask you about writing. And we'll see. Okay. What kind of all right, right, right. So yeah. It's a lot. So yeah, what yeah. sort of generation comes from this. Um, so your book, How to Think, I, I, you know, this is a kind of meta book, right? I mean, right. It's, it's giving us a sense of how to think about critically about something that we do all the time, the right. cogitative process itself. Yep, yep. Um, I like books like that, by the way. Mm -hmm. and they challenge us to think through you know, the things that we do naturally without giving much critical reflection to it. Mm -hmm. I was watching the news last night. I won't tell you what news station it was. <laughs> uh, but I was watching it last night, and there, there was the anchor uh, discussing um, obvious issues that are going on in the political sphere right now. Wonder what that and, might be. Um, yeah, and so and and there were four panelists on the, in the conversation, all quite learned, mm -hmm. right? So they had uh, those intellectual heft on the panel, right? But the mode of discourse was such that we have, I think, all grown accustomed to, right? And that is, there's a kind of competitive, competitive listening, right? Um, not engagement, right? Not listening. It's, right. It's it's a it's a it's a, it's a constructive approach to a conversation that seems right. to one up the next person. Yeah. And yep. it's not dialogical. So exactly. You mentioned in your book how to think on the front end. You give the story um, from I think the fellow's name is Jason Freed. Is that his Freed. Name? Mm -hmm. Freed. Mm -hmm. uh, who has some encounter with some public intellectual. Right. And he's, he viscerally reacts to his ideas. Right. And, right. And his his line was give it five minutes. Right. 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 So I, I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about what. Yeah. What does, what's that story mean? What's what's yeah. in five minutes? What are and these are your terms here the refutation mode of thinking. Right. Right. Where where the learning process is now cut off. Right. But we're just I'm just right. gonna kind of re. Enforce right. my entrenched views already. Yeah. So tell us about how you kind of came to these yeah. ideas and these stories, and yeah. help, help us think about things. So, so you know, Jason Fried is a, a, a software developer and entrepreneur, uh, um, really smart, interesting guy. And he was at some conference and where there was a guy speaking, and and the the speaker hadn't been going for you know more than a few minutes when Fried was thinking that's 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 totally wrong. That's totally wrong. You know I. He's going about it all wrong. It's not the right idea. And from that point on, he's just like, when is this going to be over? You know, when is this going to be over? Because as soon as it's over, I'm going to go up here and tell him that he's, that, you know, that he's wrong. And so he waited. He sat there. He tapped his feet. You know, finally it was over. He runs right up and he says, I just think you got this totally wrong. And the speaker just said, give it five minutes. <laughs> just, just give it five minutes. And Fried was so taken aback, you know, and, and, and he realized that, he hadn't done that. And uh, in fact, he hadn't probably hadn't given it more than about 45 seconds before he had made his judgment. And, and, and he realized at that point how often he did that, that his reaction was instantaneous, right? And, um, and that it was time, he needed to be able to step back and just reflect on it. And if he just reflected for five minutes, first of all, he might change his mind. But certainly he would calm down enough that he would be able to address things a little more constructively, right? 
But you think about that. You think about how how often <laughs> how often if so, you, you you can post something on social media and then somebody is disagreeing with you and you're thinking, how have you even had time to read that? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I've had that posted for more than three and a half seconds, you know, and you're already telling me I'm wrong, you know. I mean, and and it, it was social media prioritized that kind of instantaneous response, and that's also the case in these kind of the, these, these sort of TV talk shows, uh, you know, the cable TV news argument shows, right? Uh, I, I have a friend who, who used to be on those shows from time to time, and he said he got specific instructions. He's a conservative, and he, got, he said he had specific instructions. You are on here to represent the conservative point of view. And what that means is no matter what the other person says, you have to defend the conservative point of view. I, and he said, "Well, what?" He said, "Well, what if what, what what if what if I agree with them? What if they say something and I think, oh, that's really a good point?" And they say, "Do not say that. <laughs> do not, under any circumstances, say that." And they made it really clear to him, if you do that, if you were to say, "You know, I think you've got a good point there. You're probably right, and I'm probably wrong," then you would never be invited on that show again, right? Because that's not what it's for. It's not it's not for coming to consensus. It's for keeping the hostilities going because hostility creates tension and tension creates interest. And interest creates viewers. Mm -hmm. And viewers create advertising revenue. Right? So that's that's how it goes. That's how those dominoes fall. So uh, so I think we have a culture that in a thousand different ways militates against give it five minutes, right? And so that's why at the very beginning of the book, I'm thinking there are probably people who are going to read this book saying, this is a bunch of crap. This is a stupid book. And I just want to say right at the beginning, can you just give my book five minutes? Can you just, you know, and, and see if you can calm down enough to have a somewhat more rational reaction to it? And I, I was, this relates, I guess, to your role as an as a English professor for so many mm -hmm. years. How has being an English professor, someone who's engaging literature and knowledge and right. engaging the world and viewpoints of right. others, Right. How's that shaped your your understanding of what it means to think critically and to, I guess, lean mm -hmm. against that? What, what is it, the um, the refutation mode of thing? Right, right. Yeah, that's a, that's actually an interesting. I don't know that I've thought about it in exactly that way before, but I do think there is a connection, and that is that. Um, one of the things, uh, uh, you know, young people tend to have strong responses and instantaneous responses. And so you can often find people who read a book and say, I hated this book, or I hated this poem, or I hated this story. Right? And and um, and then you try to say, oh, well, there's this really interesting stuff going on here. And sometimes students will say, ah, you know, you're just... You're just making that up, you know. That's that's so complicated and, and weird. And, and, and I will often have to remind them, you know, uh, let's let's say you spent ten minutes reading this poem. Um, the person who wrote it may have spent months working on it, right? Writing a draft, thinking about it, changing things, thinking about it, changing more things, putting something back in, you know. Uh, when you do that, there's a lot of complication that, that 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 is reasonable to expect. You know that there's interesting stuff going on here that maybe we haven't thought about when we've just had a first reading. So in many ways, what I'm saying is, give it five minutes, right? And maybe give it a little more than five minutes. Let's let's try. This is one of the reasons why I wrote this book on 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 charitable reading. You know, let's why why, why don't we assume the best of this? Why don't we assume? I mean, what would it be like if you just imagine, if you just started from the presumption that the people who wrote the books that you read know what they're talking about? Just assume that they're at least as intelligent as we are. 
right? Just start with that assumption. Now, you might have to revise that assumption later on. You might at some point say, oh, you know, actually, this person is not as smart as I gave him credit for being. But better that that's the way you revise, right? Better to revise your opinion downward. Because if you start with a low opinion, you're probably never going to revise it upward. You know, you're going to dismiss it altogether. So a lot of teaching, you will know this as a teacher, is teaching students patience, right? Be patient with this. Let it kind of settle with you for a while. Think it over. Let's raise some ideas in today's class and mull them over, and then let's come back in the next class and talk about them a little more. Always having to slow people down uh, when they're reading any kind of complicated or difficult text. So in that sense, it's a pretty easy transition to talking about reading. I see it, you know, I mean, especially when you're dealing in the theological realm where yeah. I teach. Right. Students come in with pretty entrenched ideas for the right. most part. And, and and trying to help them learn the skills of intellectual virtue, which I right. think is what part of this is, and, yep. and, and a kind of humility to make sure that you yep. understand right. your interlocutor before you actually mm-hmm. engage them critically is a very hard thing because mm-hmm. we move to deconstruction all too quickly. Right? Absolutely. That's the move we've made before. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that's a, that's a challenge. And then, and then but, you know, but the other side of that, the other side of that is that people who see, they look around and they see people who are rushing to conclusions and who have foreclosed on the possibilities and who know what they think and who are not you know, going to ask questions about it. I used to have, I used to have uh, uh, debates with fellow uh, Episcopalians about whether you should, um, after you've had the ashes imposed on Ash Wednesday, whether you should wash them off or leave them on all day. And wash them off is the answer. <laughs> As it happens, yes, that is the answer. So, and and because my I had I had a rector, uh, a preacher, a very influential man, a guy named Rick Lobbs, who later became the uh, the dean of the cathedral in Orlando. Um, and and Rick always said, wash them off because you are not to be as the scribes and the hypocrites, you know. So you're not you're not and and so. But my my friends were like, no no no, you've got to be able to. You got you got to you got to keep them on there so that people can see it as a witness, you know. And they wouldn't finally budge. They wouldn't budge on this, and I wouldn't budge. And so finally, I said, "Look, Rick Lobb said it. I believe it, and that settles it." <laughs> and we, you know, I just the appeal, the naked appeal to authority, you know, right there, uh, right there at the end. And so there's a lot of that, you know, there's a lot of that kind of thing goes. And so sometimes people see that and they think, "Well, you know what? I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be open-minded. You know, I will be I will be open-minded." Yeah. And um, and uh, G.K. Chesterton, ha- Chesterton has a great line where he says that you should open your mind for the same reason you open your mouth, so that later on you can close it on something nourishing. <laughs> it's a real, I mean, really wonderful, right? And so, in this tradition of the intellectual virtues, which is, I mean, how to think is actually a, a translation into popular terms of the intellectual virtues tradition that. Often we most most of the virtues we talk about as being midway between two vices, so that um, you know as Thomas Aquinas says, hope is midway between presumption and despair. Right. So in in the intellectual life, one of the most important intellectual virtues is firmness, uh, holding a view firmly, which is midway between the two vices of flaccidity. You know, you, you're not holding it at all and rigidity, where you're crushing it in your hand, right? And so so holding an idea is like, have you ever held a bird, a live bird, right? You have to hold it firmly, but not too firmly, yeah. right? 
you can't be rigid and you can't be flaccid. If you want to hold it, you've got it as a kind of a gentle firmness. And that's the way I, I think is really appropriate to our ideas and our convictions, you know, that we need to have an appropriate firmness of conviction. So just as it's no virtue to be Rick Lobb said it, I believe it, and that settles it. It's also not a virtue to say, well, who am I? I'm just, you know, I'm open-minded. I, I don't have, you know, any, that's, that's why I'm better than you because I'm so open-minded. You know, <laughs> that doesn't work either. Uh, finding that right degree of firmness in our convictions is really key. Yeah. And that's hard for people to get to. It's hard for me to get to. So. It, it seems that there's more entrenched kind of firmness in intellectual discourse today. In other words, the facility yep. is not part of the public discourse for right. sure. And I'm wondering if, if you see that with your students. Now, at Beeson, we live in a little bit of a yeah. theological cocoon. You know, it's, right. it's, that's not quite the same issue. But I read right. that piece by Mark Lilla. I'm sure you did. Mm -hmm. came out in the New York Times. Yeah. Right. So here's a sort of someone that shares a kind of liberal worldview of some yep. sort, politically and yep. ideologically. Mm -hmm. But he, he said he's, he's experienced a very different kind of student over the years. Yep. Right? You had the student 20 years ago that was the firm liberal like he was, who was I arguing for an idea X, yeah. and I'm going to argue for that idea. But now the student argues as an X. Right. You know, uh, speaking as so-and-so, I think this. Right. And which, which changes the nature not, of the yep. conversation. So, and we're seeing this right. these two weeks. We're seeing this right. on all sides. Yep. So help us think through that. Because that, that can be yeah. very disoriented to think yeah. how to even speak yeah. charitably and kindly right. in that kind of conversation, right. but recognize really what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge that, uh, that uh, I think is so important and I don't have an answer to yet. Um, uh, I, I was recently rereading Alan Bloom's famous book from 1987, The Closing of the American Mind, because the 30-year anniversary. And one of the things that Bloom talks about there is, we well, you know students today, the one thing that they know is that they don't know anything. The one thing that they're sure of is that there's nothing you can be sure of. The, um, that, that living in radical uncertainty is the only way to live. And I thought, wow, how much things have changed in 30 years, because that's not the problem that we have now. The problem we have now is people whose positions are are so that they perceive their beliefs to be so rooted in their identities that to question their beliefs is to question their very identity, right? And so, so you will often hear, uh, you know, students, college students today, saying, uh, if you question their view about something that's really, really dear and really, really important to them, say, you're denying my humanity. You know, you're, you're de by, by saying this, you are denying my humanity. And I don't know what to say to that. You know, I mean, I can say, no, I'm not denying your humanity. And th but then they just say, yes, you are. <laughs> and I, I don't know you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure where, where to go from that, except just to try to... to so here, here, let me give an example, a real quick example. Uh, last uh, uh, last year, not long after How to Think came out, I went to give a talk at, at Duke, and I was uh, so I gave a public lecture, and then I, I, I uh, was in a class with a guy who does um, he's a philosopher who also does cognitive science. So he has a group of students who are some of which are in philosophy and some of which are in brain science and it's a really interesting group of people. Mm -hmm. And so one, one student said to me at one point in a relatively confrontational way, you know, that who, who said, he, he, he said, you know, I'm what, I'm what a lot of people dismissively call a social justice warrior. 
And he said, and I'm, I'm happy to own that. You know, that's what I am. But what, you're talking about this conversation, you're talking about dialoguing with people, you're talking, that's assuming that there is some sort of equality of the people, but I don't think there is equality. I think some people have the power and some people don't have the power. And if you don't understand that, how is it my job to educate you? What, how is it my job you know, to, to, to educate you? And my response to that was, it's totally not your job to educate me. It is not your job. So, however, that doesn't mean that you might not want to. Right? That even though it's not your job, you might, in certain circumstances, think, you know, it would be helpful to me to win that person over, so let me go and talk to them. And let me try to persuade. And let me try to deal with them. I say, you don't have to. You don't have to. It depends on what you want. Right? But if what you want is to get more people to see things your way, and therefore to vote your way and to support your policies, then you might have to make it your job. Depends on what you want, right? And so that's the way that I tried to put it. And, I, and it was, I, he had actually a really positive response to that. It was like, okay, if you're not telling me it's my job, but you're leaving it to me to decide whether I want to persuade you or win you over, you know, okay. I can sort of accept that, you know, and uh, so I thought, okay, note to future self, you know, bring that one out again, you know, when you get a chance and see see if it works the next time. Um, but that, so that's what I, I'm just trying to remind people who do have these positions that are so closely associated with their identity that you still have to live in a country with a lot of people, millions and millions and millions of people who don't have the identity you have and don't see things the way that you do. So what are you going to do about those people? You can't take away their right to vote. You can't take away their place in society. You might be trying to do both of those things, but you're probably not going to succeed. Maybe persuasion. Maybe maybe you catch a few more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Just maybe. So that's kind of where I am now, but it's a problem that I don't really know how to solve, but that's kind of the approach I'm taking toward yeah. it at the moment. So, if I were to take a sort of K. Arthur inductive study Bible approach to some of your more recent writing, and I, <laughs> that was loaded. And I were to highlight a particular word that seems to appear quite a bit. It's the word pleasure. Yeah. We're going to come back to this. Yeah. And my hunch is this is this is your sort of Augustinian uh, instincts that are shining through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pleasure and yeah, yeah. disordered loves and, and the right, right, right. But in your book on how to think, you're raising a question, I think it's a really important one, about what I think would be a perceived distorted pleasure about the feeling of being a part of the in-group. Right. The satisfaction that comes with that. Right. Which I think is your brokering to a larger audience of uh, what the nature of group think dynamic. Right. And how that Absolutely. Absolutely. Our own cognitive processes. Right. So, Right. I want to ask you about that. I mean, yeah. well, how do we how do we lean into this? And, yeah. And, 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 yeah. Yeah. I t you know, uh, there are the things that you th when you're writing a book, there are the things you think are the most important, and then sometimes after you've written it later on, you think actually there's some other things that were more important, mm -hmm. and that's the thing that has gotten bigger and bigger in my mind uh, as, as, as since the book came out. Um, and the the uh, so there's a really famous essay by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring. And in The Inner Ring, he talks about this desire to belong that many people feel, that most people feel, this strong desire to be affirmed by their peers. 
and and he, he makes the argument that of all of the the um, the desires that human beings have, he says he thinks that is the one that is most likely to make a not very bad person do very bad things. And that's actually been borne out by a, a good bit of recent research. Uh, there's some really fascinating recent research on what the, the, the researchers call hyperpartisanship, in which they say that, that, that if you feel like you are, you're not sure that you're really accepted by a group that you want to belong to, then you will take the most extreme uh, version possible of the views of that group. Like, you know, not only am I one of you, but like I'm even more one of you than everybody else. Like I'm even more on your side, right? I, so I say that's often the former fundamentalist like myself that meets reform theology. That's, I mean, a very... God bless yeah. you. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen a lot of pain <laughs> over the years <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. No, I think that, I think that's how, and then you're, you're, uh, and, and, Excuse me if I'm saying this. If this wounds anybody, you know, I I I have so many dear Roman Catholic friends, but boy, do I struggle with the converts. <laughs> you know, that that the cradle Catholics are much more generous to me as their brother in Christ than many of the converts are. You know, the converts are you are what I left behind. You know, and so now I've got to. Um, yeah, and, and, and so you sort of take on these exaggerated versions. The, 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 some of you will be familiar with the journalist Rod Dreher, and Rod talks about when he was a recent Catholic convert, like how he would run to a bishop and go down on his knees and kiss the bishop's ring, you know, just to just to show, you know, I, I'm not just a Catholic, I'm a super Catholic, you know. <laughs> And so, you, and so that works in partisan politics as well. You become hyper-partisan. And the other element of that is that uh, the way, the primary way in which people register their belonging to a group is not by saying, I affirm what, you, what, what all of you affirm, but I hate all the people you hate. And so you take those two things, the extreme, taking the extreme position and believing that insulting and hating the outgroup is the primary way to solidify your group identity, that's how the inner ring makes you into a really bad person, right? Because then you become cruel and, and mean-spirited and nasty and condemning and mocking. And But you say, but I'm just doing this in order to reaffirm my my place in this group, right? And then when the, the, I didn't realize this until I started writing the book, actually, I don't think. I may have realized it earlier and then just, but just forgot it. But not long after Lewis gave that talk on the inner ring, he gave another talk called membership about what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And, and what he says about being a member of the body of Christ is that, that and he doesn't explicitly contrast it to the inner ring, but he implicitly does. And it's really interesting because where if you are if it's an inner ring, the inner ring does not tolerate any diversity. It does not tolerate any dissent, right? You can't say, I'm not sure about this, you know, because you'll be kicked out. You will no longer be welcome in the inner ring. Um, whereas when you have the many members of the one body, those different members, those different organs have different functions, and there's a degree of variation, of difference, of diversity that you would expect. 
And not only that you expect, but that you're, you're happy for, that you rejoice in. You think about all the, think about all the people who at your church do joyfully the work that you would hate to do, right? <laughs> that you would, you please don't give me that to do. But there are people who really do it and do it well. And thanks be to God for them, right? And so that kind of variation in role, that variation in temperament, that variation in gift is something that a, a community of genuine, where there's genuine membership can, can approve of and can appreciate and can even glory in. Um, and, and, and one of the ways that Lewis says you should test the difference is that if you belong to a re- if, if you're really a member of a body and you have serious doubts or questions or you start to feel like you're headed in a different direction than the other people in the group, you can say that to your brothers and sisters without being excluded, without being kicked out. Like they'll hear you. You know, they'll listen to you. They'll work with you. Um, it, it might cause some tension. It might cause some frustration. But they're not going to boot you out for that. And so one of the things that I, uh, that, that, that dovetails in my book with one of my major themes, which is that you can't think for yourself. You can't think for yourself and you shouldn't try. We always think with other people. Everything that you have ever thought is a response to what somebody else has thought or somebody else has said, whether you're agreeing or disagreeing. Thinking is just social all the way down. It's always about human relations. And so what an inner ring is not a group that you can think with. They won't let you think. They won't let you disagree. They won't let you question. They won't let you doubt. They won't let you be confused. They won't be patient with you. They demand obedience, right? But you know that you're a, you know, a member of a body if they will address your questions and respond to you and maybe debate with you, maybe push back a little bit. But they're going to keep that conversation going with you because they value you. And, and that's an incredible gift to receive. And when you have people like that, those are people you can think with. I tell my fellow teachers, whenever I'm talking to teachers, I say all the time, you want to be the kind of person that your students can trust you to think with. Right? You are a trustworthy person to think with. How do, you, how do you make yourself into the kind of person and present yourself as the kind of person that your students can really trust so when they're confused and they're afraid and they're uncertain and they're wondering, who can I talk to, you're right at the top of the list. You know, that I feel you can, I can come in and talk to the, to, the student thinks I, they can come in and talk to you and that they're going to get uh, a warm welcome. Maybe some pushback, but also... A warm welcome. So I, I have, uh, I, I can't, this is a terrible for me to tell this story because it's so boastful, but I'm so excited that I have to tell the story anyway. I have, at Baylor, I have an atheist student. She's like part of the Baylor Secularist Alliance and she's like really, you know, hardcore <laughs> about this, but, but she really likes to talk about theological things and so she comes to my office regularly and talks with me, asks me questions. Why are you a Christian? Why do you, you know, believe this? Why do you believe that? And she, not long ago, she, when she, she left my office, she said, she stood up and said, Dr. Jacobs, this has really been so interesting. I'm so thankful. You know, I think my two favorite Christians are you and Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and I thought, I said, Lord, take me now. This is, this is, I'll never get a better compliment than that as long as I live, you know, to be in the same, you know, sentence with, 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 with Fred Rogers. 
Uh, I thought he was Presbyterian. Was he? I watched that show. I thought he was Presbyterian. What was the new documentary that came out? Yeah. What? Yeah, same difference. That's right. Okay, let me ask you this. They're not fundamentalists. That's the key thing. Uh, so let me ask you this question, and, and this is one of the areas that I struggle to think through the way in which the analog works between the intellectual life of the mind and the university context. Yeah. And that's one thinks about kind of keeping a conversation open, which right. is the kind of, I think, the best mm-hmm. of a patient teacher that you would see who's endlessly curious and the conversation's never sealed and final. Right. right? And I, right. I, I love teachers like that, and I want to be a teacher like that. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't always transfer as easily, does it, into the life of the church, mm-hmm. where one thinks about canonicity. Right. There's a certain kind of in-group mm-hmm. left that mm-hmm. people learn. We just think about our liturgy, yep. oblation, yep. who uses right. that language. Right, 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 right. Um, so there is a certain kind of idiolect or language system that's unique mm-hmm. to the church itself. Mm-hmm. There, mm-hmm. So, in other words, the church is is uh, inner circle in the yeah. sense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's an inner circle that has a certain kind of canonical normativity. It receives yep. itself mm-hmm. within a broad stream of tradition right. that's authoritative. Right. It's thinking through those things, but it's doing so in such a way that right. wants to be right. charitable and hospitable, right. but at the same time filled mm-hmm. with a certain kind of joyful mm-hmm. conviction. Yeah. So that's one of those areas where I think, and I joke, and maybe this is a whole thing, it's like you, rarely do you want an academic in charge of something. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to keep debating. <laughs> yeah, that's it's right. so fun, but someone's got to be the decider. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so help me think through that theologically, because that's one yeah. of those areas where I think talking about literature, right. ideas, and right. public policy and politics right. is one thing. But. Well, you know, first of all, there's no way to do it that isn't going to get you in trouble in one way or another, as everyone who's ever tried to run a church knows, right? It's going to, it's going to get you in trouble one way or the other. Um, there's a really, uh, I'm going to go back to Lewis again because the, 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 these things that I've been talking about, he actually uh, puts them in, in, in narrative form in his novel, That Hideous Strength, and um, where you see Mark Studdock being drawn into an inner ring and Jane Studdock being drawn into genuine community, genuine membership. And in that community she's drawn into at this house called St. Anne's, um, there is, uh, it, it is, it is a religious community. It is made up of people who are, who are serious, committed Christians. And there's a guy there named McPhee, uh, who isn't. He's, he's an atheist. Um, he is actually a kind of a portrait of Lewis's tutor when he was a teenager, whom he called a uh, man named Kirkpatrick, whom he called Kirk, or the Knock, or the Great Knock. Um, and, and it's sort of Lewis extending a kind of a generosity to his atheist teacher, whom he owed a great debt to. And, and McPhee is welcomed into the community, and he's given a role in the community, even though he doesn't believe in the core things that the community is given. But he is not given a leadership role. And in fact, some of the challenges that they face that are specifically, uh, specifically spiritual challenges, they, they, the, the, the leader, uh, you know, Ransom is his name, he says, this is not for you, McPhee. Uh, you know, this is something that you need to stay away from. And it's interesting because he doesn't say, you're not allowed to do this because you're not good enough or because you believe the wrong things. He says... You can't do this because you're not protected. Because you do not believe, you do not pray, you do not submit yourself to divine authority. You are therefore fighting spiritual warfare all by yourself. And everything out there is bigger and nastier than you. 
and I can't put you there. I can't put you in that situation where you are... And so it's really... I, I, I love that idea. What, again, a lot of people are not going to like it. It's going to sound patronizing, right? But essentially what you're saying there is that the Christian life is... Uh, a, a, a body of beliefs, but it's also a set of practices. And if you're not willing to submit yourself to those beliefs and practices, you are spiritually vulnerable in ways that are dangerous for you. And we don't want to put you in danger, right? And and that is, I think, the right, that's the best reason. I mean, that's a much better reason than you're not good enough. You know, or you're not spiritual enough, or you're not devout enough. It's that you know, we care about you, and we don't want to put you in a situation where you will hurt yourself or hurt others. Um, and that a lot of people are not going to like it, you know, and are going to be unhappy and are going to feel patronized, but I still think it's right. I still think it's right. And when you're in a church and you're a leader of a church, you have to make those calls. You have to be able to say that there are some people who, because of where they are in their spiritual life, are just not ready for leadership, right? Um, in certain circumstances, what the old prayer book calls the circumstances of the notorious evil liver, um, you know, the notorious evil liver maybe shouldn't come to communion, right? But, but the, the main reason the notorious evil liver shouldn't come to communion is that uh, we're warned by Paul that taking communion when you're in a state of rebellion against God is a mortal danger to you. It's not that you're a bad person, but that you're putting yourself in, in, in danger. And so if we can sort of make it clear that what we're trying to do is act out of compassion, not out of judgment, not out of you know bringing the hammer down on the heretic, but rather trying to be kind toward the person who is unprotected. I'm I'm hoping that that would be better. But see, I, I'm a teacher. I don't run a church, so it's not my problem. So I can give all kinds of advice to people who run churches, you know, and then I can just walk away, and then they can clean up the mess later on. That's the way I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I was forced to eat the notorious evil liver as a child, and I still, I yeah. still resent that. Yeah. It's a different kind of liver. Different kind of liver. Let's move on. Okay. Um, uh, your, your book on Christian humanism, uh, and that, it was fascinating, Alan. It, here, here's my take on your larger thesis. And tell okay. me this is where you're doing. Um, so here we are in the height of the Second World War, which many are viewing as the outgrowth of modernity's ugly grandchild. Yeah. And you have a group of public intellectuals who are thinking about the ways in which the humanities, not just theology, but the mm -hmm. humanities, uh, might play a constitutive role in the rebuilding of culture right. in the West. Right, right. And if I see what you do toward the end of the book, you basically say they gave that a go for a while, and then they kind of went back into the privatized right. um, work, realizing yeah. that it yeah. really it was an effort that wasn't going to succeed. Right, right. So that, that seemed to me to kind of be the larger you know, right. shape of where you're going in the narrative. Mm -hmm. What does it say about the Christian humanities yeah. today? You're, yeah. you're, you're you know, a distinguished right. professor of this stuff. Right. I mean, do we, do we I'm, a I'm a dignified professor <laughs> of this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So does the, the humanities and the, and, yeah. the, and the recovery of this have a role in Bill Doom and culture? Yeah. So, so, uh, so the, the, the first answer is that, is that the, my, my book is a historical narrative from which I draw some conclusions, but not all the conclusions. And I think that there are some further conclusions that I want to draw in a later book. You know, and there's some, so, yes, that's right. Yeah, see, the son of the year of our Lord, 1943. Or, but, but, um, but, but what, 
Oh, the, the, the main thing that I was, uh, there, there are a couple of th lessons that I think that we can draw. So here, just really briefly, here's what it is. The, the, the theme of the book is this, that 1943, January of 1943, the leaders of the Allies have a conference in Casablanca. And what they're doing is planning out the rest of the war. Um, and why they're having the conference in 1943, is, uh, at the beginning of 1943, is that they know they're going to win. Like, they're looking at the numbers, they're looking at the state of the war. Now that the United States is in the war, the primary thing that that means for the Allies is uh, industrial production that exceeds every other nation involved in the war put together, right? I mean, that the Germans and the Japanese literally could not sink American ships as fast as Americans could make ships, right? I, it was just the, the way the, 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 the ships rolling off, uh, the, the, the shipyards, the airplanes, the, I mean, it, it, plus just the, the enormous population of the U.S. It, it was a done deal. The question was, how was this going to go? And what they did was to kind of, in, in early 43, kind of lay out some, some, um, um, options for the Axis powers. And they basically said to Germany and Japan, we can do this the easy way, which means you guys cash in your chips right now, or we can do this the hard way. Uh, and of course the Axis powers chose the hard way and millions more people died as a result. But I thought it was interesting how absolutely confident that the Allied leaders were, and they had good reason to be. I mean, they had, they had run the numbers, and they knew that their technological superiority was so enormous that it wasn't going to be possible for the, the German and Japanese and Italian armies to, to overcome that, or the technologies. I mean, they had, they had already broken, you know, the Bletchley Park. Uh, uh, people in England had broken the Enigma. They'd used the, Enig uh, the, the Enigma machines that the Germans used to encode their messages. Those had been broken. They, I mean, they knew they knew where they were technologically. They knew where they were militarily. It, it was it was it was there was only one possible outcome of this war, and um, and so. I think that was generally felt in the, 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 the allied nations as well. And so these intellectuals that I write about were people who started thinking, okay, well, this war is going to end and we are going to win it militarily, but will we win it morally? Will we win it culturally? Will we win it spiritually? And what uh, Reinhold Niebuhr is associated, particularly, it's not clear that he uh, coined the phrase, but the phrase is, you know, I, I fear that we will win the war but lose the peace. Right, and so, um, so they started turning to thoughts of education. How can we how can we educate and form young people morally and spiritually as well as intellectually in such a way that they are fit to lead the democratic nations of the West when the war is over? Mm -hmm. That's that's what they're that's what they're thinking about. And insofar as there are lessons from that for us, the first one is this, um, they were too late. They were too late. The technocrats <laughs> were winning the war, and so they were going to get the chance to win the peace, right? The technocracy was so, the, the engineer, the, Paul Kennedy has a book called Engineers of Victory. It was the engineers that won the war, right? And so what that did was to sort of make people think that the peacetime world was a world in which you need social engineering. You know, you engineer society correctly, and then 
That's how you fix things. That's how you make it work. They, they caught on too late. They didn't read the signs of the times as early as they should have, right? But the second thing is when they did turn back to their private things and they didn't keep going, they didn't keep banging this drum, I, I think they all felt that they had failed in ways that they really haven't. Mm -hmm because people still read T.S. Eliot today. People still read C.S. Lewis. They still read Auden. They still read Maritain. They still read Simone Weil. These are people who had a much, much longer, wider, greater influence than they had any idea that they would have. And so I, I want, if, if I could go back to them, right? We're talking about going back to my 30-year-old self. If I could go back and talk to them in 1943, I would say, whatever happens, don't give up. Don't stop. Don't stop working on this. Don't stop thinking through these things. Don't stop making these arguments. You're not going to win the whole culture, but maybe you can win smaller parts of the culture. But I think what happened is that they kind of bailed out, and Christians in general bailed out in a way, and began to build a kind of a Christian subculture that was not that closely associated with, not that responsive to what was going on in society as a whole. And as a result, you know, society just veers farther and farther and farther away from, from what Christians believe to be true and right. And so I think what we should do is to not repeat that mistake. First of all, try to read the signs of the times as early as we can, right? You look, try to look around the next corner of history. Try to see, try to discern where the world is headed um, and, and anticipate where it's going so that you can respond um, you know, the, the, the old famous, the great hockey player Wayne Gretzky said, you know, I didn't skate towards the puck, I skated towards where the puck would be, right? That he, he knew where it was going, he could, he, he could read the patterns and see where it was going. And that's, I think, what, what, what we need to practice. What are the arts, what are the sciences, what are the disciplines that will help us see where the future is going? And then the second thing is, don't give up. Keep plugging away. Keep trying to respond. There are openings and there will be openings, right? They, they, they may not be where you want them to be. But, but here's the thing, and this is where I think, you know, my own career is not, it's, it's something I'm grateful for, but I think it ought to be an encouragement to other people, right? You know, I mean, I, I grew up an Alabama redneck, you know, in, 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 a, in a broken home. My father was in prison most of my childhood. I, you know, I, I, it was a top, and when he came back, he was an ugly drunk, and it, it was a horrible way to grow up, you know. But but God found a way for me. He found a path for me, and I've been very open my entire career about being a Christian. And what that means, I've been so outspoken about being a Christian, is that I am flatly, absolutely unemployable at any major research university in America. There's no way I could get a job at any secular university in America. No way. Couldn't possibly happen. But if you look at these books, right, the How to Think is on an imprint of, of uh, Random House. One of the, and I'm going to have another book coming out soon that's also going to be on an imprint of Random House. I've got books on Princeton University Press, Oxford University Press. The universities closed their doors to me, but the university presses didn't close their doors to me, right? So I might love the idea of having Harvard want to hire me or something like that, but if that doesn't happen, I've got another door that I can go through, right? So. I, that's one of the main things I've learned is that if you if if you if you're faithful and persistent, and James Davison Hunter talks about faithful presence, right? You try to have a be a faithful present, 
God will open doors, just maybe not the ones you anticipate, right? There may be one that you think he ought to open, <laughs> and he may never open that one, but maybe there's another one. And you've got to be alert and attentive to those kinds of possibilities. And don't expect to change the world, to quote Hunter again, don't expect to change the world, but maybe you can change your neighborhood. You know, maybe you can touch one or two lives or three lives or four lives, you know, and then you don't know what's going to happen down the line. You have no idea what's going to happen down the line. One of the most famous poet, one of the most famous poets of the last 140 years or so is Gerard Manley Hopkins, one of the greatest Christian poets who ever lived. When Hopkins died, he had published two poems and he thought that his career as a poet was an utter absolute failure and that no one would ever read anything that he wrote. And in fact, nothing of his got published till 30 years after his death. And then 30 years after his death, finally his poems got published and people thought, oh my goodness, here was this great poet. Mm. And he has been a source of consolation and encouragement and, and, and prayerfulness to generations of Christian readers. He died thinking he was an absolute complete failure. He didn't know. I, I, I rejoice to think that now he does. <laughs> but now he does. Now he knows what he didn't know at the time. So don't give up on it. Look for those doors to be opened and be aware that you never know what difference you are making in whatever walk of life you are. It may be just really, really small things, but those small things might get to be bigger somewhere down the line. That's great, Al. Thank you. Um, let's pick up on this notion of trying to project where things are going by yeah. intellectually, yeah, yeah. culturally. I imagine, I'll put myself in this position, I imagine there's some who are here like this. It's, it's difficult enough to figure out where we are <laughs> um, on one yeah. level. Is, yeah. is projecting and thinking through critically about where things are going, is that a learned skill? Um, is it a transferable skill? And right. as you've given some critical thought to this, what, what do you think are some of the significant issues that Christians right. and Christian thinkers and theologians right. have to engage around right. the corner? I've right. got one in mind, I'm curious what you think. Well, I, I want to, before talking about the issues, I want to talk about something I think is a habit of mind, right? Um, um, do any of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention uh, a phrase and see if this uh, phrase means anything to any of you. The McMartin Preschool. Right. The child abuse scandal in the 1980s that centered around a preschool where, um, uh, supposedly, the people who ran the preschool were sexually abusing children in the most horrific ways imaginable in satanic rituals uh, at the at the preschool. Okay, um, the 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 people who ran the preschool were convicted. They were thrown in jail, and it emerged a little bit later that none of it had ever happened. That what had happened was that a group of people who got the idea that something like that was happened elicited through leading questions um, uh, testimony from small children. Um, and the small children realized that the more terrible the things that they would say were, the more approval they got from the people around them. And so these were, I mean, looking back on it, these, it is impossible to understand how anybody believed any of this for one moment. And yet, that was front page news. It was the leading story on the nightly news every night for months and months and months. It was one of the biggest moral panics in American history. 
And now, not many people, you remember that, right? Not many people remember it. It is, what's really fascinating is not how big a story that was or that how huge it was, but how quickly it disappeared from the American imagination. There's a book about it that just came out a couple of years ago called We Believe the Children, uh, the History of an American Moral Panic. Yeah, yeah, it's it, there were, it was it's a version of the witch trials, right? The 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 Salem witch trials, just just a modernizing, up to date version. The reason I tell you the story is that that was something that everybody forgot because, and I think they forgot because they were ashamed of it. Like I can't believe we believed that. I can't believe that we were we we were bought into that story. Let's just put that out of our minds. And what that means is that you don't learn from it. You don't learn from it. You don't learn, and, and, and what you need to learn is the ways in which panics and obsessions can happen, and and when you're in the midst of it. And now, of course, I mean, they didn't have social media then. Can you imagine what it would have been like if they'd had Twitter and Facebook at that time, right? I mean, and now the moral panics just sweep over us, right? They're, I call them Twitter tsunamis. You know, they just come, they, they just, they, they, they come over us and everybody's completely absorbed. And then, like, three months later, nobody can even remember that they were talking about this, right? And, um, and I think our, our forgetfulness, our present mindedness, our failure to, to keep hold of the past, is I think our greatest enemy in this case, and and that it's it's an enemy in multiple ways. But one of the uh, two two main things. One is that it we can't we can't see that we've been through this before. We can't recognize the pattern. If we could recognize the pattern, we could say, Ah, oh, yeah, I've seen this kind of thing before. I need to think twice. I need to be careful. You know. Um, but also because it's the most important thing today, you think it's the most important thing in the universe, right? And uh, and then you, you you can you I mean just think about how think about how just a few weeks ago the thing that nobody could stop talking about and I, frankly I think for good reason is the 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 treatment of 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 uh, immigrants at U.S. borders right and then now for the last two weeks. Nobody's had a word to say about any of that, right? It has just completely disappeared from our consciousness. And maybe when the whole Kavanaugh thing is over, that'll come back. But it was like, well, if that was the most important thing two weeks ago, three weeks ago, how can it be of no importance now? And that's because of the tsunamis that just wash over us. So, so the next book I'm going to write is going to be one about, about learning from the past and about understanding the past. Um, and um, keeping making the past present, uh, as one of our our great, if troubled, Southerners, William Faulkner said, the past is not dead; it is not even past. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that seems to me to be the one of our m- the most neglected and yet most important tools for coping with the present is not being all the way in the present all the time, but cultivating what what Thomas Pynchon in one of his novels calls temporal bandwidth, right? Temporal bandwidth, the, the, the wider, he says, it's, it's an engineer who says this, which is why he puts it in these terms. So excuse me for the, the weird language. He says, personal density is proportionate to temporal bandwidth. And what he means by that, he says, the, 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 the wider your now is, the, lo- you know, the, the more your, your awareness extends into the past, the more personal density you have, the more substantial you are as a person 
right? Whereas the more present-minded you are, you're you have a tiny little temporal bandwidth. You become tenuous and vague, and you get blown as 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 an even wiser man once said, you get blown about by every wind of doctrine. Yeah. Right. Brevard Childs, who's a bit of a hero of mine from yeah. the world of biblical studies and theology, apparently the stories bandied about that a student came to him at Yale and said, um, I keep getting B minuses on your paper, my papers for your class. Um, what do I need to do to get an A? And apparently Childs says, you're going to need to become a deeper person. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And it's part of the challenge with this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What, what a terrifying thing to hear, right? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, can we shift to reading? Is that all right? Sure, sure. I have bad news for you. Mm, we mm. spent an hour on the first part. Great. Um, so that was fun. But I would like to. Well, there's some coffee over there, yeah, yeah. so y'all load up. We really only have about 15, 20 more minutes. Yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit about reading. I, I love this book of yours, Alan. I don't want to get too fawning here, but I love okay. the, the book I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, a scene in a movie, uh, a Woody Allen movie called, I think it's called Match Point. I can't remember. Mm. I think it's Match Point. The tennis movie. The tennis movie. Yeah. So yeah. you had this this young, um, upwardly mobile young man who's marrying into, I guess, what one might consider the London elite, um, uh, and culturally speaking. And there's a scene in this movie that's so telling. There's there's no dialogue. It's just the camera sort of zooms in, and he's in his bed, and the light is on, and he's reading the Cambridge Companion to Dostoevsky. <laughs> he's not reading. Not reading Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. He's reading <laughs> the Cambridge Companion to Dostoevsky, and that's all the scene is. And you realize what he's doing is this man's trying to find a couple of one-liners for, right. for the dinner right. party the next night. Right. 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 I think that's an example. That's why I read the Bible, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think that's, a, that's an example of yeah. the distinction you make between right. loving to read and wanting to be able to say that I have read. I have something. read, right, right. And I have to say, that was a challenge to me because, right. and, and I think about your own sort of intellectual background, and, and my, I mean, there, there was that great chronicle piece of uh, Confessions of a Middle Brow Professor. Right, 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 right. That's me. Right? Yeah, so yeah, I realized yeah. that I have major gaps in my own education, and there's just things I need to read. Um, so that I can check it off. But this, your book leans completely against that note. Or you could keep eating barbecue so that you can tell me more about the good barbecue places to go to. So. That's a, there's a theology book. Okay. <laughs> um, so talk to us a little about that. WIM is, yeah. is a major thing right. for you. Capital right. WM over against yeah, yeah. WM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pleasure, reading, not having read, but reading right. itself slowly. Right. I've got a lot of details on this, but just let's get into that particular idea. Yeah, so this is something that really came directly out. So, so I should say that um, I, I didn't really consciously plan this, but I, that was the first book I wrote that was really something that came out of my history as a teacher. Um, and then the second one that really came out of my history as a teacher is How to Think. And then this book on temporal bandwidth right, is that's, that's coming now is also going to be out of it. So I, I think of that as my pedagogical pedagogical trilogy, you know, I got these these three books that have come out of my my experience as a teacher. Um, and um, but book Pleasures of Reading was the first one. And it really stemmed from something very specific. It was students uh, when I still was teaching at Wheaton College and students, seniors would come to me, uh, my office hours, and they would say, uh, you know, Dr. Jacobs, I'm you know, I, I, I feel like I've learned so much in my time at Wheaton, but there's so much I still don't know and so many things that I haven't read and so many things that I, can you, can you give me, you know, like a list of books that you really feel like every education, educated person should read? Can you, you know, can you just give me 
some list of things that I need to be reading in, in over the next couple of years because I'm afraid that when I graduate and I don't have this accountability to classes anymore, then I'll stop reading or I'll read bad stuff. You know. So could you just give me a list? And my answer would always be nope. I'm not going to give you a list. And <laughs> to which they would always <laughs> look at me like that. And, and I would say, no, read what you want to. You, you, you know, you've been reading what people have been telling you to read since you were six years old. You know, read what you want to. Um, uh, Randall Jarrell, the poet, says, read at whim. Read at whim. And so that's why I would tell him, read just whatever you take a notion to do, read. And, and they say, well, I'm afraid I'll just read junk or I'll read Harry Potter again or I'll read, you know, Stephen King books or, or whatever it is. And I would say, well, then read that. Read that. Um, you know, for heaven's sake, you know, this is this is not about eating your broccoli, you know, just just you read something for fun for a while, you know, and, you know, probably at some point you're going to want to read something a little more and a little different than Harry Potter, you know, and, and so when that impulse comes, follow that. But and if you find out after three or four years that the only thing you want to read is, you know, is Harry Potter again, then you probably need to stop and reconsider some of your life choices and, you know, <laughs> think about who you are and what, you know, but, but, but not right now, you know, just kind of cut yourself some slack here, you know, and, and, and I, what, what, it's, it's the thing you're, 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 you don't, when you teach literature especially, you know, it's so easy to take something, like a lot of people come and take literature classes because they say, I love literature, I love novels, I love poetry, right? And you can just, you can just squeeze that out of them like you're squeezing juice out of an orange, you know? So that you can make it so theoretical and so scholarly and so mechanical and so analytical that they forget how to read for pleasure and a lot of English professors will tell you, I don't know how to read for fun anymore. You know, I've, I've lost that. And I, you know, that's never happened to me, thanks be to God. And I don't want that to happen to my students, right? And so I want them to be able to, to, to say, no, you know, the, the, I, I, you have all these books that lecture you. You watch too much television and you need to be reading more. You know, you spend so much time on video games, what you really need to do is read the great books. And I think, when does that ever work? Right? When does that ever work? When, when do you ever actually succeed in shaming people into do, doing the right thing? You know, I mean, it's just it's a bad tactic. So I say, no, don't read because it's better for you. Don't read, you know, in in the eat your broccoli, you know, spirit. But read it because read something because it's fun. And when you recover the enjoyment, the pleasures of reading. You know, when you're reading, you're getting away from social media, you're getting away from the television, you're getting away, you know, you're, you're in this little imaginative world of your own, what one great reader called your cone of silence. This was a guy who grew up in a working class English home. Nine people lived in a two-room house and seven children making noise all the time and he would be in there reading and he said, he said, people, my, my siblings would say, you know, Dennis, Dennis, and I wouldn't hear them because I was... In my little, he said they had to come and shake me, you know, to get me out of that. Finding that little cone of silence, finding that little world where you're away from all of the noise and all of the, you know. By the way, turn off all the notifications on your cell phones, right? Just turn off the notifications and just have that world where you can kind of plunge into something for a while. 
even if what you're reading is not the most literary thing in the world, you're, you're still doing something that is really wonderfully pleasurable, but pleasurable in a different way than what most of the world offers most of the time. So that's what I would try to tell them, you know. And they were like, okay, well, I'll try. You know, I said, no, no, it's not about trying. This is not about another discipline. It's like, no, just have fun. Just have fun. So that's where it came from. Yeah, and you, and you also talk in the book about reading itself as the building of an interior culture. Right. Um, which right. is a bigger project than just reading Harry Potter repeatedly, right? It is, um, sure. What, what does the building of an interior culture look like and for what purpose? I mean, what what right. does that do to someone? Right. Yeah, I, I think that... Uh, this is this is one of the reasons why I uh, you know, books are written when, every time someone writes a book they're 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 are sort of in a way pleading for a response right we, we when you write a book you don't want somebody just to say uh, I, thank you for that I agree with everything you said that's actually not a very exciting response you know you want you, you want some pushback, or you want to say, oh, this made me think this, or this, you know, you want responsiveness, you want some kind of response. And so, one of the things that you're doing when you're reading, and you're reading really well, and you're reading really attentively, is that you're giving that kind of response. And maybe you're only giving it in your own head, but you're giving the response to the words that have been given to you. And so, you're, 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 the, the first kind of interior culture that you're building is the culture of attentiveness. The second interior culture that you're building is the, the culture of of responsiveness, right? And then as you read more and you start getting a better sense of, you know, what's really worth my time. If you're reading at whim, by the way, one of the things you can do is give up on a book. You can say, I started it, but I'm not going to finish it. Uh, that was the hardest thing for me. I, I really struggled ever to give up a book. And I still remember the first book I stopped reading. It was a novel by William Gaddis called The Recognitions. And it was like uh, 1,100 pages long. And I fought and fought and fought. And I, the point that I got is, very, interestingly enough, the page that I stopped on was 666. <laughs> I said, this, I'm done with this beast of a book, you know, and, and got rid of it. Um, which, because that's harder. I mean, you've read that much. How do you not? But I had 500 more pages to go. I said, no, I just, I can't, I just can't. But, it, but once I did it, I was like, whoa, I can do that. I can just say, no, thanks. This isn't for me. That's, you know, set, set that aside. And so, so first, you, you, you're building a culture of attentiveness. Second, a culture of responsiveness. But third, a culture of discernment, discerning what is worth your time, what is worth your energy, what is worth your commitment, right? And, and certain things aren't. Uh, this is why Francis Bacon says in a very famous passage that some books are to only be tasted, right? Um, and only some few are really to be chewed and digested. You know, uh, because the only some few really provide that nourishment. So, so what Bacon is saying is, it's okay if you look at a book, read a few pages, and say, no, I don't need to go any further. It's okay to skim some things, right? That you build a culture of discernment. But as I was saying, I was saying this to some Sanford students earlier today, um, and so you know, poor Jason has had to hear me say some things like four times now. But um, he'll be hearing it in his sleep. But um, that. It's good when you build that interior culture then to come out and test it in relation 
to others, mm -hmm. right? To find some community of readers that it might be, ideally that's gonna be a local community, you know, but I know a lot of people who don't have a local community of readers for whom Goodreads, the Goodreads website is a is a, like a lifeline for them where they can interact with other people who've read the same books that they've read, right? It's not as good, but it's better than nothing. Um, and then kind of test your responses in relation to others. So the, you build the interior culture, but then you also test the interior culture in relation to other people. Um, and that's how you make it stronger and better and healthier. You know, one of the things that you said in the book that I found really helpful in, in at least giving ourselves to, to attentiveness and learning how to, how to be attentive um, is uh, this notion, and we've learned this, I guess, from the cognitive sciences, that no one can multitask. Right. It's, 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 it's literally a, impossible. It's an impossible thing to do. Right. Um, what you have instead, there's a, a, a woman named Linda Stone who worked, uh, she researches these kinds of things and she worked for Microsoft for many years and she said people think that they uh, achieve multitasking but they don't. What they achieve is what she calls continuous partial attention. Yeah. Right, where you're, you're, you're paying partial attention to three or four different things in sequence but that is not multitasking. Also, there's tons of research that shows that there is an inverse proportion, it is directly inverse. The better you think you are at multitasking, the worse you will be at multitasking. It's the people who think that they're great at it who are really terrible at it. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read you. I don't know if this will bother you to be, have, have yourself read to you, but here's a quote from <laughs> okay. I'll try to listen. Um, but really, the cultivation of attentiveness, I found comfort in these words. These mm -hmm. are good words for me. Um, the cultivation of attentiveness has always been hard for human beings. You know, as long as we have had readers, we've had readers frustrated by their inability to concentrate. It's the nature of the human beast. Yeah. Of course, we have unique challenges given our technocratic mind. Right, right. Um, speak to that, but just the nature of what, how does one cultivate attentiveness? Right, what, what are right. Involved? Because I, my sense is from your writing, you want to avoid a certain kind of moralism and preachiness. Right. But there is a right. kind of preachiness that's coming along with this on some level, right? Yeah, you know, it's um, you, you, it's it's a sneaky book in that regard. You you know, that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, you can't really um, can't really avoid that altogether. But um, yeah, I mean, the um, Iris Murdoch, the novelist and philosopher, says that the most difficult task of thinking is truly to believe that others exist. Right? That just, oh, I, 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 I think about a, a friend of mine uh, in, in high school, we were playing, we were playing basketball in high school and he got, it was several or something, and he got whacked right in the, in the mouth by an el stray elbow and, and busted his lip, you know, and I remember, I remember him going, blood, my blood. You know, like, like I, I suddenly realized the really important thing here is that it's not just blood in general, but it's my blood. That's what really, that's what really matters here, you know. And of course, we always think our blood is more important than other blood, right? We always say it's, and, and, and that, that, um, attending to another person in such a way that they are as real to you as you are to yourself is Murdoch says the most difficult thing that human beings can do and yet it's so vital uh, for that and and um, Simone Weil, uh, you know who is a major figure in in uh, year of our Lord 1943 Simone Weil says that that that's hard in general but it's especially hard when people are suffering when people suffer 
there is something in us that so makes us so desperate to turn away, you know, that we just don't want to attend to the people who are suffering, who are experiencing. There's a French word that doesn't really translate into English. It's malheur, and it means something like affliction. There is this kind of affliction. And she says, this is, this is for, for Simone Weil, this is like the great task of ethics, is to attend to the person who is afflicted. But everything in us wants to turn away from it. We want to turn away from it towards more pleasant things, or we want to turn away from it towards our thinking about our own pain. Or if we do look at it, we're not looking at it as, 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 as somebody suffering, but as a spectacle. Right, the thing that, like you know, the the, uh, the 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 rubbernecking on the freeway in Chicago, they call it gapers' delays. People are gaping at you know the wreck on the side of the road. Like you know, what are you hoping to see? What are you hoping to see? You're hoping to see a, a leg, you know, out there, you know, or I mean, what a head rolling across the. I mean, what what you know? But people, are, you know, that we're drawn to it in some sort of. Augustine uses the example of seeing a dead body on the side of the road, and he you know, he calls this is curiositas, this is curiosity, which he he thinks is deadly, right? So we can attend to people in that unhealthy way. What's hard is to attend to them in a way that is fully compassionate, fully invested in, in, in them. And the more they suffer, the harder that becomes, right? So, so this attentiveness, I mean, even reading a book attentively is a bit of training, right? It takes you, it gives you a little bit of training in focusing on something outside yourself. And that's, I, I, I desperately want to believe, is a transferable skill. Right? That you learn to attend to something a little beyond itself. That maybe if you learn to be, if you practice and you get good at reading really attentively, you know, then maybe the next time you pray, you're going to be able to pray for 30 seconds longer before you get distracted than the previous time that you prayed. Right? I mean, that's, that it is, I think, a, a, a transferable skill. And then the question becomes, once you develop the faculty of attention, what should I attend to? What are the things that are demanding my attention? Um, and so that, in that way, we lead from this relatively trivial point of allowing yourself just to enjoy a book because it's fun to the task of really deep compassion. My last question for tonight. Okay. And then, do we want to open it for Q and A for just a few minutes, or yeah. we, we need to land the plane? We know it's the right, right, right. Um, we just finished a four-week series at the Advent on the Book of Ecclesiastes, mm. um, which has been, I mean, for me, very kind of personal engagement of the reality of human existence. You pursue wisdom. The, pursue the preacher knows a few things about this, doesn't he? Yeah. Pursue wisdom. We're pursuing pleasure. We're pursuing our own toil. Recognizing that these things are like smoke, they're, they're, right. they're ungraspable. Right. And of course, this is how he ends his book, right? Yeah. Ecclesiastes 12, 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much studiness is a weariness of the flesh. Right. I'm, I'm you had to bring that one out, didn't you? Yeah, so, and I, I asked. Him, I was having fun until now. <laughs> well. And this is this is a this is a personal question for me, right? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm I guess mid-career mm -hmm. in theological academics, what I right. 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 And you're 
more seasoned. Is that a kind of way of saying yeah, that? Yeah, thank you. Um, and I'm feeling this verse. Heaven. Yeah, yeah. Because when I think about my mm-hmm. time in my 40s now, when I thought mm-hmm. about my 30s, I had this kind of idealized right. view. Right. Frankly, your books have helped me lean against some of these. But basically, yeah. I'm going to get a grasp of the Western intellectual tradition. Right. I'm going to engage the big thoughts. I'm yeah. going to own them. Right. Um, and then I'm going to move into my 40s and begin to build on that knowledge. And, yeah. and now I don't even remember what I've read. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... How how have you processed that? It, it, is, is my am I alone in this feeling? Yeah. Is so hell it right? Yeah, this? yeah, yeah. Um, could you repeat the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> no. Um, yeah. You know. So so I so I was writing the the 1943 book. Um, and part of this, I mean. I will honestly say that part of writing the book is the sense that, you know, Baylor hired me away from Wheaton. They paid me more money than Wheaton paid me. And, and part of this is that they, they, they really wanted and expected me to produce the scholarly books. And I, I could not do it, but I would feel that I was letting them down somehow. And so that's kind of an external motivation, right? But I was in the middle of writing the Year of Our Lord, 1943, when the 2016 election came around, and, and that was when I thought, I need to write something that is actually addressed to my fellow Americans. Uh, and that's, that's when I wrote How to Think. And, and the book has done well, um, but what difference has it made? I mean, I'm looking, you know, I was trying to get people to be more thoughtful, to be more patient, to be more generous, to understand other people better. Yeah, like that's really working, you know? I, I mean, it's, I, I know, why, why would I do this, you know? I mean, it just, it just, it just felt like such a failure, you know? And so I had this idea for this third book on, on temporal bandwidth and, uh, and my, my agent, I have a, a literary agent, and she was like, oh, I really love this. Let's go out and sell this, and I'll find a good publisher for it. And I said, can we just not? You know, I'm, I'm just going to pull the proposal. I, I don't want to write this because what difference does it make? You know, I really felt so discouraged about it. And then at a certain point, I realized that I was actually, I would, th- I would just write a little blog post. And... Um, and, and the blog posts that I was writing were kind of on the themes of this book, you know. And I thought, wait a minute, I think I'm actually going to write this book after all. It's just I'm not going to get paid for it because <laughs> it's only going to be on my blog. So if I'm going to write the book anyway, at least I should have some money, you know, for it, you know. So, so, uh, and so I said, yeah, I think I'm going to do it. And so I, I, but, but you know, what I had to do was sort of give myself some time. From it. I really did have to have that time when I had said, you know what, I don't have to do this and I'm not going to do it. And when I gave myself enough time away from it, the ideas a little later on started bubbling back up again, you know, and, and it's, it's sort of like it's a book that wanted to be written. Um, and then that was when I remembered, this is a thing that's already come up in relation to, to Hopkins, but I remembered the preacher. I remembered what he says a little earlier in Ecclesiastes where he says, cast your bread upon the waters, mm-hmm. right? You cast your bread upon the waters and you'll see whether it returns to you, you know, uh, that you, you choose. You don't know whether to choose this or that because you don't know what will prosper, but God knows what will prosper and he will make prosper what he will. So the the 
the Ecclesiastes is actually a really important book for me because I think what Ecclesiastes does is remind me not to fret about all the things that are above my pay grade. You know, the things that are at God's level of discernment and of decision and of authorization and of imposition that I can't do at all, you know. And if, if, if nobody reads, if I write this book and nobody reads it or it gets bad reviews or whatever happens, fine. That's not, that's not for me to determine, right? The only thing I can do is to write the book as well as I can and pray for God's grace and God's help so that I will write it as well as I can. And then I'm going to cast that bread on the waters and then we'll see what happens. So Ecclesiastes yeah. is my hero in all this. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Given our time, how about time for two questions? Can we do that? So we'll get one question from Shannon. Uh, I'm going to stand so up here. Yeah, yeah. That was that was H.G. Uh, Wells' last book. Uh, he was an angry and upset man when that happened. Yeah. And where do you fit uh, satire? Right. So a few years ago, I made the argument. I wrote an article in which I argued that the, of course, the uh, the, the world's Anglicans do not have an official way of canonizing saints, right? But I argued that we should canonize Jonathan Swift, that he should be Saint Jonathan Swift. I wrote a collect for his feast day, <laughs> in which I said, you know, we asked the, you know, I, 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 I'm tempted to look it up on my phone, but I'm not going to do. You can find it later on. But, um, but I said, um, um, I think the beginning of my collect was Almighty and Most Wrathful God, uh, <laughs> you know, who. Uh, who, who is patient towards sinners and yet sometimes repents having made man. <laughs> you know, be, I encourage to be like your, your, your servant, St. Jonathan Swift, you know. And then I had a long litany, you know, for the, I wrote a litany for the feast day, you know, where we would ask St. Jonathan to intercede for us, you know, when we were faced with human stupidity. And so, um, so every few months I say, when you get more agitated and frustrated about what's going on politically, let me just show you this piece and let's see if we can get Jonathan Swift canonized because I think he's the saint we need for our time. So, so look that up sometime, the, my, my case for the canonization of Jonathan Swift. Okay, so. One more. Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> I was going to ask you that, that temporal bandwidth that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. In, in today's world with the, you know, many young people right. uh, thinking about socialism and right. you know, that's such a right. you know, great thing. Right. You know, you free this, free that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just interesting that, they, right. that they're not looking back in history and seeing how it's right. failed. Right, 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 right. Yeah, there is a uh, so there's a uh, I always have I always have a kind of ideal reader in mind for my books like a kind but I've never before had like one person in mind but for this book I do kind of have one person in mind it's a writer a really gifted writer but who's very very different than me in almost every respect it's a woman named Roxanne Gay and uh, she is um, a black woman a lesbian. Um, Bad Feminist. She's the author of Bad Feminist, right? And she's also got a new book. She's she's really really large, and she has a new book about sort of how to 
what it's like to have to navigate through life when you're bigger than the airplane seats and when you're, you know, and stuff like this. And so it's a, I mean, she's, she's large to the point of it being dis, uh, a disability. So she's a black, lesbian, disabled person. Um, and somebody asked her recently, so what are the great, you know, what are the, what are you like your favorite classic novels? You know, and she said, I don't, I don't read classic novels. I don't, I don't, you know, she basically said, what is there for somebody like me in the past? You know, the, the, the whole of the past is something that rejects me. Rejects me for being black, rejects me for being lesbian, rejects me for being disabled. Why, why should I read that? And I thought, you know what I would like to do? I would like to write a book that would convince Roxane Gay to read old books. Right? How could I write it in such a way that that would be appealing to her? And I... That's like setting the bar really, really high, right? But I mean, that's a real challenge. But that's what I want to do. I don't want. I don't want to be preaching to the choir about this. You know, I want to be talking to people who think basically everything before 1990 is an unmitigated disaster, right? And so how can I get them to think that it's worthwhile to study the past, and and not only to study it, but to read works from the past as as human documents that can speak to us across the centuries and across the millennia. You know, that's what I want to do. Alan, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for joining Thank you to everybody who's involved in helping organize the organization. And Victor, thank you all. Can we close with a word of prayer? We didn't start with prayer. That was more on my part. Father, thank you for an evening like tonight where we can think together and learn and, and Lord, press our, our hearts and minds to engage the larger ideas and issues that are facing us in our world. Help us to be learn to be good readers and good listeners. Help our, us to continue to love your word and your church. And Lord, we thank you for your servant, Alan, uh, and the gifts you have given him for letting him take the time to be with us tonight. We pray that you'll continue to bless his teaching. We pray that you will anoint his research and his writing, and um, Lord, continue to give him the energy and the creativity to enter into his call. So Lord, thank you for the evening tonight. What a delight. We give you praise and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.